You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So Mark chapter 9, we are continuing our sermon series in the gospel of Mark and uh, last week, we kind of were at the pinnacle in some ways uh, as a turning point, but a pinnacle at the same time as we saw the climactic confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, a claim literally that Jesus is God. And then we see Jesus tell us Easter before it happened of his death and his resurrection. And, uh, and we see how he unpacks for us that he is a king who is going to suffer. And that if we are going to follow this king who suffers, we also must be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. He unpacks the cost of what it means to follow Christ. And that uh, transition passage, Mark 8, 34 through 38, really introduces what we're going to talk about for the next uh, number of weeks in Mark chapter 9 uh, throughout chapter 10. Because what we're going to see is three times, Mark 8, 31 was the first, but three times Jesus is going to predict his rejection, his suffering, his rejection, his death uh, and his resurrection. And each of those times, Jesus is going to give a discipleship lesson with it. If you kind of go back in your mind, we uh, said that there are a few different purposes in the Gospel of Mark. Four, four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all written by a direct eyewitness of Christ or through the testimony of an eyewitness. And Mark is a disciple of Peter uh, and serves alongside the Apostle Paul, we know from the book of Acts. And Uh, Most likely what's taking place is Mark is writing largely on the testimony of Peter. Um, And and you find out a lot about Peter in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And uh, one would only know those things if if Peter was the source. And Mark is writing both to help us see Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. There's there's kind of an evangelistic purpose that we would see and believe. But then there's also this uh, kind of missionary training purpose that uh, Mark is trying to help us understand what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a disciple. Um, And that that kind of emphasis is really what comes out at this point, because Jesus is now going to turn his face towards Jerusalem and heading towards Jerusalem. The opposition with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of of Israel during that time, that opposition is going to increase. And and Jesus is going to uh, continually be telling his disciples um, what it means to follow him, as well as preparing them for his ultimate death and resurrection. But here in Mark chapter 9, we get uh, somewhat of a a pause and a peeling back of the curtain as to what's to come. It's known as the transfiguration. Uh, uh, Literally what takes place is a metamorphosis of Christ before the eyes of three of his disciples, James, John, and Peter. And these three disciples that uh, go with Jesus up on this mountain uh, get more than they bargained for that day. Um, and so but we begin in Mark chapter nine, verse one, which if you'll notice, uh, the Bible actually is trying to help uh, your English translations of the Bible are trying to help you understand what goes with what Mark nine one. You would think that kind of begins a new section, but it's actually a conclusion to what we looked at last week. 
uh, in Mark 8, 34 through 38. It's the tail end of that and concludes what Jesus was saying there. And then in your heading, you'll see the transfiguration for, for the most part, I would imagine, in many of your translations. And, and verse 2 is what begins the transfiguration. But they go together, I think, because it says in chapter 9, verse 1, that truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Now, what does Jesus mean? Um, That there are some standing here who won't taste death. They won't die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Are there some that are going to live for a long time until Jesus returns? Is there a sense of expectation that the kingdom was going to be established sooner than it was and this didn't come true? Uh, That would be a skeptical take on what Jesus is saying here. Or uh, what I think is most likely is Jesus is saying after unpacking for his disciples the cost of following Jesus and telling them of the journey that lies ahead of him, that the Son of Man must suffer, a term Jesus uses the Son of Man as a reference to himself, Uh, It's got roots in Daniel chapter 7, if you want to look at verses 13 through 14 in Daniel chapter 7. But as he unpacks it, he's saying the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected. He must uh, be killed, crucified. Ultimately, we're going to see that's on a cross and he's going to rise from the dead. Obviously, Peter did not like that game plan. He didn't think that the king should suffer. He thought the king should conquer Um, and the king should conquer, particularly the Romans and uh, and and the, the Israelites would, would kind of regain their, their position and their footing. The kingdom of God would be established. Peter wanted glory without suffering. Jesus said, glory follows suffering. And the, the, the whole lesson of the Christian life that is incredibly hard to accept, but even harder to live, is that we too, as we follow a Savior who said, glory follows suffering, is that we too must embrace the fact that glory follows suffering. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us to go look for suffering. We're not gluttons for punishment. We're not looking for terrible times. We're not looking for trouble. Uh, But as we follow Christ in this world, there will be troubles of many kind. Uh, We we see Jesus teaches us. We see that to follow Christ is to expect and anticipate uh, suffering as we identify with Christ. And as we live in a broken world, we will experience hardships and trials. And in that journey, we can expect that as we go through it, that we know what awaits us is future glory. And I think Jesus is here telling his disciples, there are a few of you who are going to get to taste what the kingdom of God is going to be like when it comes in power. You're going to see the king himself revealed in his full glory before you die. And he's literally talking about James, John and Peter and what they're about to see on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. So what I want to do today is walk through Mark chapter 9, 2 through 13. And then I want to end with two uh, kind of application points that I think are screaming at us off the pages of, uh, of this passage. Um, and so uh, we begin with uh, the transition to verse 2. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Doesn't tell us the mountain. <clears throat> Tradition locates it as Mount Tabor. A geographical place is another place called Mount Marion. Uh, Marion, excuse me, that it may be um, if it were near Caesarea Philippi, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. It might be Mount Hermon. We don't know which mountain. The Bible doesn't ultimately tell us, but we know it was a mountain. And Jesus went up the mountain with his disciples. 
Um, and he's there on the mountain. <clears throat> and we see in uh, verse two, he was transfigured before them. Now, literally, this word transfigured is the word metamorphosis. It's the, the idea of to be changed. And so Jesus is visibly changed before their eyes. And the change is drastic. And you can tell the change is drastic because uh, the description that Mark gives that I probably got from Peter is Peter probably couldn't get the words out clear enough to explain what happened. It says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It was this crazy thing. Everything. They were blinded by light and by the um, by what was radiating from from Christ. His clothing was changed. And if you look in uh, Matthew nine and in the Gospel of Luke, we see the transfiguration recorded in those gospel accounts. And it says that um, that not only were his clothes changed, but his face was transformed and and his face shone like the sun. Uh, it says that literally his whole appearance and clothing was was transformed. I want you to think about this idea of transformation and Jesus being transformed <clears throat> in this moment. Jesus is not becoming something that he wasn't already. Contrast that with uh, the incarnation, Jesus's birth. At Jesus's birth, Jesus became something that he had not been before. He took on a human body. He, he became in flesh, the son of God, eternal son of God took on flesh. Before that point, God had not been in the flesh permanently as a human being. And Jesus became flesh. He lowered himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming like us in the likeness of, of human form. Philippians chapter two says he literally became something he wasn't. At the transfiguration, Jesus did not become something he wasn't, but his disciples saw him for who he always had been. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, jot down that reference, if you will, says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The, the glory of if you want to know the glory of God, no one has ever seen the glory of God. John chapter one says to us, except that now it's been revealed through Jesus and the glory of God walked around this earth for three years and many people didn't even see it. His glory was veiled. It wasn't it wasn't like everywhere he went. There was this glowing uh, circle around him, a halo that followed Jesus everywhere he went. He says he was a man without a great appearance, that there was not much to admire about him in, in terms of his appearance. And yet in this moment in the Mount of Transfiguration, he was temporarily on earth seen for who he is and has been and will be for all eternity uh, displayed in full glory, the glory of heaven, divine splendor and majesty. Jesus is shown to be who he really is. You can just imagine how this was mind blowing for the disciples. Like what is happening? We are seeing something in Jesus that we've never seen before. The, the disciples of everybody had a sense of how great Jesus is. You remember at the end of, uh, of Mark chapter seven, I love this uh, statement in verse 37. It says the people were astonished by, me by measure all that Jesus has done. They said he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. People were amazed when they saw what Jesus did. And the disciples of everybody would have been able to say, man, 
Jesus is amazing. But here in this moment, they, they, though they thought Jesus was amazing, and certainly they were a little cloudy on what it all meant, they thought Jesus was amazing. Here, they see we haven't seen anything yet. They see there is more to Jesus than we've yet to comprehend. His glory is astounding. And, and, and so we see in the transfiguration, Jesus is transformed before them, but we also see the appearance of two people, Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. <clears throat> now, it's interesting that it's Elijah first and then Moses, because Moses would have written the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, <clears throat> and, then, um, and then you have Elijah, who is one of the prophets that, that we see in the historical books. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think, uh, so some people say this is like summarizing the, the Old Testament. Uh, some of our kids learned that the Bible is broken up into parts, right? We have the, the first part that Moses wrote, the Pentateuch. And then we, we have the history books that take us through um, uh, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. You remember them in that way because they're backwards alphabetically. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, first and second Chronicles. First and second Kings and Samuel, they're written before exile. First and second Chronicles written after exile, kind of a summary of all that happened and helps us have a perspective on all of that. And then it goes into Esther and, and Ruth and, and all that un unfolds in, in exile. And then we have the prophets, the big boys, uh, Isaiah, that's not a biblical term, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, Ezekiel, um, those guys. And then we have the minor prophets, uh, not because they're unimportant, but because the books are smaller. Uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then the Italian prophet Malachi, uh, or Malachi, excuse me. Um, and you didn't know you were getting an Old Testament review here. Um, so maybe Elijah and Moses are this summary statement of the whole Old Testament. And they're talking with Jesus. And we see Jesus is fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, but I think the ordering is, is somewhat uh, uh, intriguing here and maybe indicating that's not really the main point of their appearance. Moses and Elijah <clears throat> both are called by God. They both have mountaintop experiences where they hear the voice of God. Um, they both have unusual deaths. Um, Moses uh, goes up on the mountain, is seen no more. He, Moses had one pallbearer, and it was God, uh, right? Uh, Elijah is literally taken up into heaven, um, the, the scriptures tell us. And so they have these unique uh, end time, uh, their death experiences. And then we're told in Malachi that some expect that there's a sense of Elijah returning. In Malachi chapter 4, that Elijah is going to return. And, and, and we see elsewhere uh, that Elijah was associated both with John the Baptist, but also you remember when Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am? They said, some say Elijah. And they just didn't make up Elijah because they were picking a prophet to name. But Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 through 6 talk about the, this type of return of Malachi. And, and then even Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20 says that Israel was to expect one like Moses who would come that the people of Israel should listen to. And so uh, the, the Gospels often show us a picture of Jesus. Think about the Sermon on the Mount for a second. Jesus on a mount with the people listening, giving uh, commands, the, the Beatitudes and saying stuff like you've heard it said, but I say to you, 
like showing how he's the new Moses leading Israel into this new Exodus. The, uh, the imagery is rich in all of these ways. And I think what's happening here is we're seeing that the, their presence with Jesus confirms what Peter confessed in Mark 8, 27, that Jesus is the Messiah. What was, what was expected and anticipated in the hopes of an Elijah coming and in a prophet like Moses is Jesus. And this is being divinely confirmed. And the, the, the connections that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah all are indicating that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures and that Jesus, that, that all of this, it's not about Moses and Elijah. It's about Jesus. He's at the center of it all. If you read Hebrews, it'll make this point as the author of Hebrews. It's almost like a collection of sermons uh, that the author of Hebrews gives where he's saying, look, Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Jesus is the true and better prophet that was to come. All of it is pointing to Jesus being the one sent from God. And ultimately, in a moment, we're going to see that this is confirmed by the voice of God, the father who speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the climax. Jesus is the focal point. And Moses and Elijah come to speak to Jesus. Now, it just tells us here that they're speaking to Jesus. But in in the in the gospel of Luke, We are told that as they are speaking to Jesus, they're not just shooting the breeze about anything and everything. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his departure. That was about to happen in Jerusalem. The word departure is the same word for exodus. They were talking to Jesus about his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This means they're talking to Jesus about the cross. They're talking to Jesus about what's what's about to go down at the end when Jesus is hung on a cross and put in a grave for three days and rises victorious. It, It just goes to show when Jesus says that he must suffer, he must be betrayed, he must die, he must rise again, that this is not an aberration from the scriptures, but it's in fulfillment of the scriptures. This is not God's plan B. This is God's plan A. And for a group of disciples who are struggling to understand the plan of God, even though they appeared still to be bewildered by it all, according to verse 10, what encouragement to hear and know that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about the very thing that Jesus had just told them was about to happen. We get a sense that at the heart of God's plan, is for Jesus to come and to be crucified on a cross and to rise victoriously from the dead. It's a fulfillment of his plan. It's a fulfillment of scriptures. It's what they point to. And Jesus is at the climax of it all. And then in verse five, we get Peter. Now, I love Peter. Peter speaks up. Peter said to Jesus, he says, it's good to be here. It's good to be here with you, Jesus. And, you know, I'm thinking we're here on the mountain and you guys are chatting it up. Maybe I could build you each a tent. Look, we don't need a tent. We'll sleep outside. I'll build three. One for you, Jesus. One for Elijah. One for Moses. 
And it goes on to say, it's not, it's not too far of a stretch to say, like, Peter is just nervous talking now. I don't know if you ever, have you ever nervous talked? Like, have you ever kind of been in a situation where you just said stuff out loud that you weren't 100% sure that you should say? Uh, I remember <clears throat> I was thinking about mountaintop experiences. So in my marriage, um, before I got married, I asked my wife to marry me on a mountain. Uh, we are not mountain people, uh, <clears throat> uh, but there was a gazebo on top of this mountain at the school that we went to, and um, and we went on an awkward third date um, with her roommate as the fifth wheel and my roommate who was engaged to his uh, fiance and uh, Emily and I who had been on two dates and then her roommate uh, which she still loves us for that today um, so we went there and then I decided that would be where we would uh, where I would ask her to marry me but I, I remember going back to the first time I asked Emily out <clears throat> I I think I asked her out to every possible thing you could do um, like I, I covered my bases like breakfast brunch lunch dinner after dinner, dessert, coffee, tea, uh, you, you know, whatever you want. I, I don't think I said tea because I didn't drink tea at the time, but I said coffee. And then, and then for two days, I was afraid. So uh, we, uh, we had talked about uh, going on a hike. I said, maybe we can even hike in this thing. On the mountain, there was a monogram of our school's letter, LU. We went to Liberty University. And... Um, and so they had this big rock monogram. And so for like two days, I was afraid I asked her to go to the mammogram, not the monogram. Um, and I was certain that I said it. Uh, and I could not remember. And you don't want to ask, did I say mammogram? Uh, you know, like the whole thing was just terrible, like nervous talking at its finest. Um, she said yes. I then didn't ask her a phone for a phone number soon enough. So she said the dreaded words in 2005, 2008, you can Facebook me. You can message me on Facebook, which meant, in my mind, she wasn't interested, right? If you want a message on Facebook, you're not interested. Uh, some of the younger people are like, Facebook, what is that? Um, <clears throat> and uh, you had to have a college email to get it at that point, all right? Like, it was cool uh, for a second. Um, and, uh, and so just nervous talking at its, at its finest. Uh, some of you have heard uh, our second mountain experience on our honeymoon. We went skiing. Again, not mountain people, never been skiing before. She went skiing <laughs> once. I'll save that for another time. But uh, mountain experiences can be memorable uh, and nervous talking on a mountain can even be more memorable. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's terrified of what he's seeing. You can just imagine. And throughout the scriptures, when the glory of God shows up, people aren't like, awesome. People fall down. And Peter is terrified by what's happening, yet he speaks. As a side note, I heard one, one commentator say, uh, if you have some kind of unique religious experience, be cautious to share what you think it means because you might not understand what's happening. Here, here Peter does not understand fully what is happening. He has to have divine revelation from the voice of God in a cloud from heaven to say, here's what's going down, Peter. Um, you know, so Peter doesn't fully understand what's happening, but the father speaks and we see this happen a few times throughout scripture, particularly at the baptism of Jesus. When it says the spirit descended like a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All language that's rich with Old Testament promise. But here the implication is similar and yet different. It says the voice of the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The glory of Jesus is seen and the command from the father is listen to him. 
The one who tells you of his suffering, his death and his resurrection, the one who calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. The one who invites you to the upside down paradigm of the Christian life, which says that the first will be last and the last will be first. And if the son came not to be served, but to serve, why are you surprised that you have the identity of a servant? These lessons and these teachings that Jesus gives, the commands he gives, the father says, says that the glory you've seen should lead you to this conclusion. The one whom you've seen in glory is the one who you should listen to. That's the conclusion. Listen to him. And what remains, it says they go down the mountain and Jesus told them, as he often does, don't tell anyone what you see. But this time he gave a specific uh, time period. He says, don't say anything until the son of man has risen from the dead. Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And in a minute, we'll come back to the significance of that. And then they go on and they kept asking themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Their minds are still struggling to, to see how Jesus could die uh, and, and then rise from the dead. They, they knew of it in time's resurrection, but how could Jesus rise in the, in the middle of time? Who would raise him from the dead? Jesus raised people from the dead, but who was going to raise Jesus from the dead? They're looking at each other like, I can't raise Jesus. You raise Jesus from the dead? I can't. Who's going to raise Jesus from the dead? What's happening? You know, you could, sometimes it's easy to dog on them. But at the same time, you're like, I would be a little nervous myself. What's happening, Jesus? What are you talking about? And then they ask this question about Elijah. And it's interesting that Elijah's mentioned first. And then they ask this. If you flip over to, to Malachi, the last Old Testament uh, book, <clears throat> you see at the very end, the Old Testament ends this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so they're saying, we just saw Elijah, Jesus. Tell us, uh, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. I think the restoration he's speaking of is this turning of the hearts of people uh, towards God. But then, I, so I think Jesus is doing two things. In verse 13, he says, I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Elsewhere in Matthew and Luke, it's clear that when, um, when, when we look at John the Baptist's ministry, it was in fulfillment of the promise of Elijah. Uh, of Elijah coming, that there was a sense of John the Baptist fulfilling this promise of Elijah coming. Now, I have to admit, there may be a sense in which Elijah may come before Jesus returns somehow in some form, uh, shape or form. But there's a clear sense that John the Baptist is in direct fulfillment of that line um, of that promise of Elijah coming before the great uh, day of the Lord. So I think Jesus is saying it's true. We saw what happened to John the Baptist. He came preparing the hearts of people. It uses that language to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wanted. They, they ultimately rejected him and his head was cut off and given on a platter. But it, it's this side note as well that says, Jesus asked this other question. And how is, it, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus is saying that what they did to John the Baptist and, um, <clears throat> and, and what was expected of the coming of Elijah... Uh, the suffering that John the Baptist experienced is also the suffering that the Son of God is going to experience, that he is going to experience. So the, the focus, I think, of what Jesus is saying is on the suffering that he's about to endure. Just as the focus was on the cross in his conversation with Elijah and Moses, 
I think here he's putting the attention of the disciples on what's to come in the cross. So he unpacks and explains the significance of Elijah. Now, this is the Mount of Transfiguration, the experience that Jesus had with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. What does it mean for us? Two takeaways. They're simple. First, see his glory. See his glory. The disciples get a unique opportunity to see the unveiling of who Jesus really is. Before he goes to the cross and is raised from the dead. But what they're seeing in Jesus is who Jesus has always been and will always be. Think about this. What they saw on that day on the Mount of Transfiguration is what you and I will see when we meet Jesus. They saw it first. They got a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what awaits us. Because when Jesus comes again, he will come in glory and we will see him as he is. Yes, he's been crucified. Yes, he's been raised from the dead, but he will return in glory. So what they saw is what we will see. And when I say see his glory, what I mean is to see his glory is to is to look. And to look with affection. To, to see and to, to love, to, to look and to believe wholeheartedly who Jesus is. Not just to look and contemplate. Don't stop at contemplation. Move to affection. Move your heart to worship Him. You may say, that's funny. I don't feel like affection is what I think when I think about looking to Jesus. Well, think longer. Think longer. Because He's worthy of your affection. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your heart. There's a few different ways that I think we can see his glory. We can see his glory in the fulfillment of the scriptures. That's, that's what we looked at as we talked about Moses and Elijah. We, we don't have access to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration today. But do you know we have access to his word? Think about this. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. This is really one of my favorite connections in all the Bible. Peter writes 2 Peter and he's going to talk about the certainty of the word of God. And here's how he does it. He says, we do not. This is verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16. I'm sorry, it's not on the screen. It says this. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, when they talked about his life, we were eyewitnesses. Listen to this of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God, the father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's what was said at the baptism of Jesus. But I think he's mixing in what's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this very voice born from the holy mountain. Uh, Born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But here's how Scripture was written. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the Word of God is written in the words of human beings inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Peter says... What we saw on the mountain that day is nothing in comparison to what you hold in your hand today. You think about that for a second and let that astound your mind. What we have in the word of God is a more fully assured word based upon the eyewitnesses of Jesus's life and of his death and his resurrection. And Peter said, we saw him transformed on the mountain. We heard the voice from the father. We're saying to you, this isn't a cleverly devised myth. I don't know what you've heard or maybe you've, uh, maybe you've had doubts and wrestled with can the Bible be true? And I've said, I say often the Bible is written by 40 different human authors over 1,500 different years. That's enough to raise a little suspicion. But here's the thing. It's got one message. How do you get one message from 40 authors over 1,500 years? By the Holy Spirit leading and guiding men to write according to God's will. To give us the true word of God. See God's glory. The glory of Christ and the fulfillment of the scriptures. When you look at the scriptures, you can see the glory of Jesus by, by considering who he was. What he did. What's true of him. And what he says is going to happen to him and what unfolded through his death and his resurrection. Look to the scriptures to see his glory. Then look to the cross, see his glory in the cross. We saw that was the topic of their conversation that day. Think about the glory of the cross, the glory of Christ on the cross, that God said that you don't have to pay for your sins because I'll pay for your sins. You don't have to lose your life because I'm going to lay down my life. Actually, in the laying down of my life, you can find new life, eternal life. The glory of God is that his righteousness and and holiness meets his love and his compassion on the cross. Those two things come together. You have a God who does not sweep your sin under the rug and you have a God who does not hold your sin against you. But you have a God who forgives sins because he stands in your place for your sin on the cross. That's the glory of Christ in the cross and the glory of Christ in the resurrection, that he's defeated death, that he's defeated Satan, that he's defeated sin, that sin's power is broken, that sin's guilt is broken, that the the secure hope that we have is that one day the very presence of sin will be gone. When he returns, that though we struggle with the effects of sin in this fallen world, we no longer are dictated by the power of sin. But Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then our hope is in him and we have victory over our sin. Think about his ascension. See his glory in his ascension. Acts 1, 6 through 11 tell us he was taken up and he ascended. And the promise was that he would come just as he left. And and we think about his ascension, we see that he completed his work that God sent him to do and he ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, think about his intercession. It says that now Jesus, what is Jesus doing today? My sweet two year old uh, asks us regularly, when is Jesus coming to our house? And I've had to tell her he's seated in heaven right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not his time to come back because right now, Romans 8, 34 tells us that he's seated at the right hand of God and he indeed is interceding for us. 
I don't know if you've ever felt like you don't know what to pray. But when you do, know that the scriptures say that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is interceding for us. That's the glory of God is is that we see he intercedes for his people. He intercedes for us, for our sin. And I love it says when when Peter pray, when Jesus prays for Peter, it says that Satan wants to sift you, Peter. But I've prayed for you. I love that. The son of God says to Peter, I prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you and tempt you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your faith. But Jesus prays for us. When you feel at a loss, know that Jesus is interceding and think about his glory and his intercession. And then think about his return. We talked about this today in our equip class that we know in our heads that one day Jesus is returning. But that return has not gripped our hearts But one day when he returns, Matthew 26 tells us he's going to come on the clouds with power and glory. And we are going to see the glory of God in full display. One day our hope will will go from being faith to being sight. We'll see his glory just like Peter, James and John saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and, And this is why it's important to see his glory, because consider 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's the key to growth in the Christian life. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. And Paul tells us that when we behold the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In his little book called The Glory of Christ, John Owen said, It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. And it is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which gives us rest and peace and satisfaction, we must seek them diligently by beholding the glory of Christ by faith. That's why I say when I say see his glory, I mean, look upon him with affection. Look upon him and believe. Beg with God to help your unbelief. Beg with God to give you eyes to see his glory more clearly. Say to him, as I said this week, God, help me to see you in the way that Peter, James and John saw you. Help me to understand that's who you are. Even though I can't see you now, I believe. And by believing, I know that God and and though I don't see you, I love you. It's what Peter says. He said, we can't see him, but we love him. We don't get to see it now, but we know we'll see it one day. We need to see his glory, but we also need to listen to the father who said, listen to him. Consider this, the father's commanded that we listen to Jesus. The son has shown us that he's trustworthy. We see his glory on display. We see his life. We see his teaching. We see his sacrifice. We see his resurrection. And the spirit tells us that John in John chapter 14 and 16, it tells us that it's the spirit who leads us into truth. So when we struggle to believe, it's the spirit who helps and as I've thought about what it means to really listen, it's, it's simply this. To really listen is to ultimately obey. You can listen and not obey, but that's, that's not really listening. That's hearing. To really listen is to obey him, is to follow him. 
And as I was thinking about how to, uh, to kind of help fuel our beholding of the glory of Christ, I want to leave us with this as a conclusion, a, a tool, if you will, the tool of meditation. It's similar in many ways to perhaps what you've done in reading and studying Scripture. But I think it's something that, honestly, if I evaluate myself, I don't give enough time to. And when I have given time to it, the more it warms my heart for Christ. When I think when I speak of meditation, what I'm not saying is that we take on a state of mental passivity. I'm not asking you to hum anything, to cross your legs, uh, to, to do any type of, of position. Uh, in Eastern meditation, you empty your mind. In Christian meditation, you fill your mind. Um, I'm not talking about reading, hearing, or praying. I'm not asking you to listen to another sermon. I'm not asking you to, to just read something. I'm not even talking about studying. All of those things have their place. It's important to read and reflect, to study. We've got resources like Women of the Word, Seven Arrows, uh, the Coma Method, Observation, Interpretation, Application. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just read the Bible and ask God to help you. Um, and, and there are other ways and resources that you can study God's Word. But I'm not here talking about that. I'm talking about meditation. And one author, Charles Bridges, says meditation is the digestive faculty of the soul, which converts the word into real and proper nourishment. Building on that in his book uh, called Christ in You, uh, Brian Hedges says meditation is listening to God speak to us through the word for the purpose of transformation. It's it's reading and lingering in the word. It's reading it to understand it. Yes. But then it's lingering on it and praying as you linger on it and writing and reflecting on what you're reading. It's a, a deeper type of, of devotion to God. And it's a bridge discipline, a bridge between reading and prayer. Because when we read and we just move on to praying for some need without allowing the scriptures to inform our prayer.